Amen. Good morning, everyone. We want to dismiss our kids right now. All of the 6th, 7th, and 8th graders, 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th graders, unless you would rather stay and listen to me, which I totally understand, you guys are dismissed to go to class. And I think the 4th and 5th graders, Mel, they already, already left. Well, good morning again, everybody. Uh, welcome to the folks from NBC. Uh, Harry Smith and Christina, thank you guys for coming. Um, so much to say today in this last week of our series that we've titled Original Virtue. But today we're going to consider what some consider, and every virtue has uh, this acclaim, but some consider this virtue to be the greatest of all the virtues, the virtue from which every other virtue is born. I think it was Victor Hugo, perhaps, who said that the word which God has written on the brow of every human is the word hope. Today we're going to talk about hope, and to do that, I'd like to begin with one of my favorite poems. I know what the caged bird feels, alas. I know what the caged bird feels when the sun is bright on the upland slopes, when the wind stirs soft through the springing grass and the river flows like a stream of glass. When the first bird sings and the first bud opes and the faint perfume from its chalice steals, I know what the caged bird feels. I know why the caged bird beats his wing till its blood is red on the cruel bars. For he must fly back to his perch and cling when he fain would be on the bough a swing. And a pain still throbs in the old, old scars and they pulse again with a keener sting. I know why he beats his wing. I know why the caged bird sings. Ah, me. I know why the caged bird sings when his wing is bruised and his bosom sore, when he beats his bars and he would be free. It is not a carol of joy or glee, but a prayer that he sends from his heart's deep core, but a plea that upward to heaven he flings. I know why the caged bird sings. Paul Lawrence Dunbar. He was the son of slaves, and he was prolific in poetry and prose. He published this poem not titled, I Know Why the Caged Birds Sing, but he published this poem under the title Sympathy in 1899. He was scarcely 27 years old. Dunbar's life was cut short by tuberculosis at the young Christ-like age of 33. And in those barely three decades of life, he was the first African-American poet to garner national recognition. He was published continually in Harper's Weekly, Saturday Evening Post, the New York Times. He was heralded by virtually every literary society. Uh, the New York Times actually called him a true singer of the people, both white and black. He was a friend to Booker T. Washington. He was a friend to Frederick Douglass. Douglass actually called Dunbar one of the sweetest songsters and simply stated, a man of whom I hope great things. 
Dunbar was beyond precocious. He published his first poems in the Dayton newspaper at the age of 16. The newspaper was called the Herald newspaper, and again and again, his poems and articles were published through the years. Uh, two years after his first poem was published, at the age of 18, it was 1890 at the time, he began writing and editing a little paper called The Tattler, which was Dayton's first weekly African-American newspaper, 18 years old. His high school friends, Wilbur and Orville Wright, having just started a printing business, printed the paper for its short but impressive duration of six weeks. Time fails to tell even a fraction of Dunbar's life and achievement. If you have not studied the life of Paul Lawrence Dunbar, do yourself a favor this week and do so. Time fails to tell the story of his full life and his full achievement, but suffice it to say that he wrote more poetry than perhaps any other African-American writer, at least published poetry during his lifetime and even thereafter. He actually wrote more than poetry, publishing literature of every ilk. He published poems, novellas, novels, short stories, articles, operatas, ballads, orations. Uh, he actually wrote the lyrics for the first all-African-American Broadway musical in 1903. His work inspired the greats like Samuel Coleridge Taylor, Langston Hughes, on and on. The composer, William Grant Still, used portions of Dunbar's poems as epigraphs for the four movements of his Symphony No. 1 in A-flat, Afro-American. Uh, some of you might recognize those that appreciate music. This was the first symphony by an African-American to be performed by a major orchestra for a U.S. audience. Tellingly, his famed sympathy, which I think is his magnum opus, that's arguable. It's at least his most well-known work. But this famed poem that I read earlier named Sympathy was written only three decades after the Emancipation Proclamation. It was written when antipathy toward blacks more than simmered. It was written at a time in spite of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments which secured for African Americans, at least male African Americans, voting and property ownership. It was written at a time when, in spite of the Civil Rights Act of 1875, court and legislative decisions continuously truncated these rights, mirroring truly the daily realities faced by former slaves, their children, and their children's children. Just three years before Sympathy was published, the Supreme Court in 1896 decided the landmark case of Plessy versus Ferguson reinforcing the inhumane, sad, and unconscionable refrain of separate but equal. Specifically, Plessy versus Ferguson, if you remember, reinforced separate but equal accommodations for passengers of Louisiana railroads. But more than that, it was a ruling that set a thick pall of precedent over our land for the next three quarters of a century, and perhaps even to this present day. He was born in 1872 to set his life in your mind. He was born in 1872, about the year that the Ku Klux Klan was technically officially disbanding. 
It would reform in 1915, less than a decade after his death, attracting more than four million card-carrying members within five years. This was the world in which Paul Lawrence Dunbar, poet laureate, lived. This is the world with limited formal education, no college degree, an elevator operator by trade. This is the world Dunbar lived in, wrote prodigiously in, and died essentially penniless. Depressed, dependent on alcohol, and separated from his wife for two years. This is the world Paul Dunbar lived and died in. In 1904, he returned a broken man to Dayton, Ohio, where he was cared for his mother, dying in 1906 of tuberculosis. Dying with his wings still beating against the cage of repression. Dying with his wings still beating against the cage and the bars of repression without dying with his song still trilling against the cage of depression within. Posthumously, his short life inspired the critical Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s and 30s. And if you do not understand the Harlem Renaissance and its impact upon society, then you don't understand American history and you need to do yourself a favor and read up on those things this week. Schools, libraries, hospitals, Performing arts centers, parks, still carry his name. Most of us grew up within reach of a Dunbar Middle School or a Dunbar High School. Perhaps most famously, it was Maya Angelou who drew the title of her autobiography back in 1969, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, from the last stanza of Dunbar's Sympathy. Again and again and again, Angelou famously said that her prolific writing was little more than the song of a caged bird. A bird caged by feminism or anti-feminism, genderism, racism, xenophobia, and horrible abuse as a child. In her own poem titled, not I Know Why the Caged Birds Sing, as we often say, but in her own poem, inspired by Dunbar's poem, her poem called Caged Bird, Maya Angelou extends the metaphor of Dunbar's caged bird by contrasting that bird with another bird, the free bird. And Angelou famously, and we'll watch a clip in just a moment of that, but famously she contrasts how the free bird flies without restriction, how unbounded and unfettered the free bird accesses all the world its due. And through the bars, the caged bird with wings clipped and feet tied, she adds, languishes on its perch behind the bars. And yet in spite of its grief and rage, set this in your mind in 1969, set this in your mind somewhere between South Carolina and Ferguson. In spite of its grief and rage, as it, quote, stalks down its narrow cage, standing on a perch that is, quote, a grave of dreams, the cage bird sings with a, quote, fearful trill of things unknown, but longed for still. On the eve of her death, 
in May of last year, apologies to our friends from NBC, CBS News, made this report, and I'd like for you to see it, and Angelou shares You know, we all have the same words at our disposal, a dictionary full of them, but it takes a poet to spin them into gold, as Maya Angelou did. We end tonight with some of her most famous words from the poem Caged Bird about the struggle for freedom. A free bird leaps on the back of the wind and floats downstream till the currents end. And dips his wings in the orange sun rays and dare to claim the sky. But a bird that stalks down his narrow cage can seldom see through his bars of rage. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The free bird thinks of another breeze. And the trade winds soft through the sighing trees. And the fat worms waiting on the dawn bright lawn, and he names the sky his own. But a cage bird stands on the grave of dreams, and his shadow shouts on a nightmare scream. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown, but longed for still. And his tune is heard on the distant hill, for the caged bird sings of freedom. The caged bird sings of freedom. The caged bird sings of life expanded to its fullness due. And with the final word of her poem, Angelou answers of what does the caged bird sing? Freedom. The caged bird, representing every person ever repressed unjustly, sings clearly, Angelou says, of freedom. This freedom is obviously the what of which the caged bird sings, but Dunbar's final revelation in his poem Sympathy concerns not simply the what of which the caged bird sings, but perhaps even most importantly, Dunbar's final revelation is why the caged bird sings. Why the caged bird sings of freedom? Upon what strength, upon what source, upon what resource? In which silo of soul does the caged bird reach to draw impetus to find the why by which it might sing? I know not simply of what the caged bird sings, Dunbar opines, but I know why the caged bird sings. Listen to Dunbar again as he explains why. I know why the caged bird sings, ah me. I know why he sings when his wing is bruised and his bosom sore, when he beats his bars and he would be free. It is not a carol of joy or glee, but a prayer that he sends, a prayer that he sends from his heart's deep core, but a plea that upward to heaven he flings. I know why the caged bird sings. Indeed, the caged bird sings for freedom, a plea for full release. But beneath, to use and employ Angelou's words, beneath the fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still is a great spiritual reason. Behind the what of the song is an indomitable, soulish tour de force, a virtue born out of God's own character. St. Paul gives it name in his famed letter to the Romans, and I want you to look at this verse of Scripture with me. Romans, the eighth chapter 
And we'll read seven, eight verses there. And I wish that I could read the entirety. But suffice for now these verses. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. How long? Not long. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Oh, yes. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in, and say that last word with me, hope. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. Together, swelling in the belly of our soul, pregnant with hope, pained in gestation. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. Even those of us filled with the hope of our Lord, we groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as children. Waiting eagerly for our adoption as children, the redemption of our body. For in hope we've been saved. In hope we've been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what they already see? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Hope, the great apostle calls it, is the reason why we whistle in the dark. Hope, the great apostle calls it, is why the caged birds sing. Hope, the great apostle calls it, is why the caged bird, in view of the free bird, batters her poor wings against the bars. Hope. Hope is the strength, he said, to bear suffering. Hope is the impetus to batter wing and soul against the bars of injustice. Hope, it is named. Hope is that which causes the growing, aging child within the foster system to ever believe that the next person who sees them will choose them. Hope, Paul said, is that which causes creation to long for its full adoption. Hope is that which presses the child's face against the window of the orphanage, believing that the next car will be that one that redeems their body, Paul said, vindicating their belief that they were right, that they indeed have heard all of their young, hurting life, the voice of an inner voice, the voice within their soul that called them beloved. I'll never forget Ronnie Spence, that boy that I grew up with, sitting in my grandmother's class in the little Pentecostal church on Scott and Porter Street, Paragold, Arkansas, when my grandmother, who lays at rest today, not dead, but her body and life almost dead, her body wrecked with dementia and Alzheimer. She no longer remembers my name and scarcely remembers her, but oh, I remember her. I remember her lessons on the love of God. I remember that lesson sitting beside Ronnie Spence when she asked the children, do you understand God's love? And seven-year-old Ronnie Spence said, I sure do. And he looked around at all of us, condescending as he could be, and he says, I understand God's love. 
Your mamas and daddies had to take you home, but my mama came to a place where there were a bunch of babies and she picked me. I remember thinking to myself, what a lucky guy he is. That of all the babies in the world, he said, my mama picked me. Hope springs eternal, Paul said, in the chest of creation, longing for adoption. More than wishful thinking, more than belief. It is the combination of our deepest longings with our deepest convictions. You see, you may believe that something bad is going to happen, but that is not hope because the thing of which you believe is bad and you do not want it. You may long for something good to happen, but you may have no conviction that you are indeed going to win that lottery. Which, by the way, if you do, you can sanctify that by double tithing. <laughs> Not a regular tithe. The devil's had that money long enough, my granddad said. Bring it to the church. <laughs> Hope is not simply longing for something good to happen that you do not believe. Belief alone is not hope, and longing alone is not hope. But when you expect with confidence what you long for, this is hope. Hope is not full realization, nor is it pipe dream. Hope is not glad fulfillment, nor is it futile placebo. Hope is cherishing a desire with anticipation of it coming true. Hope is holding on to a dream in the midst of a waking nightmare. Hope is that which drained from the black feet of a young man named Martin Luther King Jr. in his final years when he oft was heard to say that his ballyhooed dream had become a nightmare. Yet trudge on he did clinging to a dream in the midst of a nightmare because a voice deeper than mortality told him that in the end this was the only dream worth dreaming. A voice that harmonized with Julian's word that all manner of things shall be well. Hope is communal. It is one of the things hope is that gathers us with eyes wide open to institutional and corporate failures, the church included. Hope is communal. And for those of us who might well have long ago given up this thing called church, hope is that thing for those of us that have been burned by the fire of institution, corporation, Hope is the thing that gathers us back together again on a morning like this, eyes wide open. Hope is that thing that promises more than one life can realize. Hope is that thing that dreams dreams bigger than one heart can dream. Hope is that thing that is lowered by the faith of others into the presence of God 
and lowers others into the presence of God when we have no hope for ourselves. Hope is communal. Hope stands on mountaintops and dreams dreams that the dreamer will only realize in her children and her children's children. Hope is a vision of God's dream in the end. Hope is a vision called the kingdom of God by the ancients, the beloved community by us. Hope dreams. Hope perseveres. Hope expects. And hope waits. But hope's waiting is not passive. Hope's patience is not an inactive sitting on idle hands. No, a thousand times no. Hope is first a longing for the world to be lived by love. Hope is second an expectation that that longing will one day be realized. And thirdly, hope is a calling to participate in the process by which the dream becomes reality. Hope is longing, hope is expectation, and hope is action. Hope is not whining that leads to resignation. Hope is groaning that leads to participation. And until you are active and until you are participating, you are not hoping. Until you join your dream, scant as it might be, to the dreams of others, you are not hoping. Until your dream is summated, until it is joined, conscripted by the dream of God from which it came, you are not full hoping. You may be longing, you may be believing, but you are not hoping. Hope, Aquinas said, is a theological virtue, and by that he meant like faith and love, one of the big three of 1 Corinthians 13, it must be given by God. I would disagree with Aquinas in this stage of the church's life that these gifts of God are not giving after we come into this world, but they are given in the very fabric of our genetic, in the very fabric of our DNA. That's why this series is called Original Virtue. We are not asking for a divine imposition of grace from without. We are asking simply to call up that image of God that was ever ours from the very beginning of time. Hope is to that degree divine. Hope is the virtue by which we join God in the healing of our world. If it were not for hope, the heart would irreparably break. It was Martin Luther in his hour of greatest trial that said everything that is done in the world is done by hope. It was one of my heroes, Norman Vincent Peale, who said hope is wanting something so eagerly that in spite of all the evidence that you are not going to get it, you go right on wanting it. And the remarkable thing about it is that this very act of hoping produces a kind of strength of its own. True hope promotes action. Wishful thinking is only an opiate. And finally, perhaps Dunbar's muse was Emily Dickinson, who herself wrestled with powerful hopelessness. Dickinson, if you don't know her life, was a dark, proto-Gothic young lady, but not always so. Her cryptic life, her difficult life, that life that was so strange that in her last days when the doctor would come to check on her sickness, she would set her doctor in the living room 
And she in her bedroom would simply walk across the threshold from one side to the other, giving him scarcely two and a half to three feet to see her. And it was only, it was only that degree of contract or contact her own doctor was allowed. How did this brilliant poet, this once bright-eyed and bushy-tailed young girl, how did she become so dark? She describes her darkness in a poem. The poem was called, A Great Hope Fell. She wrote the poem, A Great Hope Fell, after her heart was broken by a young man to whom she was to be married. He was a Congregationalist minister in New England, there where she lived, and living beneath his dignity, not only as a minister, but as a Christian. He was given a call in California, and with no explanation and no contact with his fiancée, he up and moved to California, scarcely a word, and her heart was broken. Those who tell us her story and biographies make it very clear it was after that moment when her heart was broken that she began to spiral down into an abyss. She described that abyss in her poem, A Great Hope Fell, perhaps its most painful, poignant, and famous line. She says that the wound grew so large in me until my whole life fell into it. Oh, chew on that for a minute. The wound grew so large until my whole life fell into it. Have you ever been there? Have you ever had a loved one that slipped through your fingers as you watched them? Irrevocably unremittingly slip through your fingers as they fall into the despair of wound. Later, a biographer mused, could a wound grow so large that a whole life could fit into it, or was it that the life became so small? Either way, she was consumed. The darkness at the end of her life <clears throat> was matched by the brightness at the beginning of her life and career for perhaps Dunbar's muse was Emily Dickinson, who in those early days of her poetic life, long before she wrestled with powerful hopelessness, it was Dickinson who wrote, hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without and never stops at all. I continually face two irrepressible dispositions as a pastor. Two irrepressible dispositions and attitudes, each of them polar opposites of the other, and yet in ways so deeply intertwined and connected. Perhaps the two most powerful forces I ever face exuding from the human soul are the opposites, hope and hopelessness. When I meet the indomitable virtue of hope, I realize that I am little more as a pastor than a spectator who has to stand back and simply cheer on that which is playing out before me. 
But again and again, when I sit with those who languish on the opposite end of that spectrum, when all hope is gone, only God will ever be able to tease out the strange admixture of what is spiritual, what is psychological, what is emotional, what is biochemical. I'm so satisfied that the gentle hands of God will tease those things out so well, so much better than we. And in the end, in some unifying whole, those things will not be seen as distinctions of the other, but they will be seen in some grand soulish way as one and the same. Oh, that we would be as good to one another as God is to us. But ever and again, even perhaps more powerful than hope, the thing that would make me want to take off my shoes, for I know that I stand on holy ground is when I sit in the presence of hopelessness. When a human soul in one last ditch effort has drugged their despair to me, it is there again and again and again that the only palliative that I can offer is to simply acknowledge them after listening to their story. And I want to say this about listening to their story and being there with our friends in the midst of their hopelessness. There is no higher gift that you can give to a person as they wrestle therein than the gift of presence. I remember Parker Palmer, one of my favorite authors, saying that in his mid-40s when he himself went through a terrible valley of despair, clinical depression so severe that as a college president, he found himself for almost a year in a fetal position immobilized by depression. Spiritual despair so thick that he could not move. Palmer said it was there that I realized <clears throat> that a person's misery becomes the misery of their friends. And it was there that I realized the spectrum of enlightenment on which friendship must grow. Because there were many friends who came to me in the first few months and they would sit with me and they would talk to me and they would try to help me and they would try to fix me because to some extent they were not only trying to relieve my misery, they were trying to relieve their misery for mine was theirs. And after a few months, one by one, they quit coming. When they could no longer relieve my misery, they realized that they could no longer relieve theirs so the answer to their friendship, of their friendship, was given in this, that they left off with me. Because the only way to relieve themselves now was to be gone. But one friend, I remember, came to me. And he sat with me. He sat with me without words for almost six months, Palmer said. The most he would do is periodically he would take my shoes off and he would massage my feet. At times he would even wash my feet without words. After six months I began to talk and for several months he only listened because he knew that's what I needed. And after a few months I began to invite him into the conversation and he talked healingly to me. Finally, little by little, I came from the wheelchair to the crutches to the walker to the cane to a functional limp. On the other side of my healing, as the cure for my despair of soul was to return to the classroom because I had 
done that which I thought academics were supposed to do and climb the ladder through the university system to go all the way till I was president and as a president I realized I'm a teacher what am I doing here and he made his way back to the classroom where he wrote the courage to teach and every teacher should read it Palmer said in the wake of that devastating experience he asked his friend how long would you have sat with me? To which his friend smiled and whispered, I never asked myself that question, nor did I ever think of such. To sit with a friend in the midst of their hopelessness and to receive the gift that they have brought that hopelessness to you, they have brought that hopelessness to a community of two and to be able to whisper to them, ah, there you are. Your hopelessness must not be complete, for you have come to me. And in me, and in the joining of our hands and hearts, we will together press our eyes into the darkness until we find that pinhole of light. And like a mouse, if we can scarcely get our head through it, we will eventually get our whole body through it. To sit, Steve, to sit with that friend that you told me about last night when he said, I will not go. I will not go to treatment. To look at him and to sit down, you said, and one hour, two hour, four hour, you didn't talk, but you sat there in stalemate for 11 hours. And after 11 hours, the friend whispers, I'll go. Oh, the power of community to heal hopelessness. The power of a hand in mine. Esau, hopeless. Jacob, hopeless. Two hopeless brothers, one bereft of birthright, one bereft of integrity. And after 20 years, they fall into one another's arms, Jacob fully expecting his brother to kill him. And as Esau lifted his hopeless face to his, Jacob whispers, your face to me is as the face of God. To be able... To not truncate freedom, but to bring forgiveness. To be able to be that thing which perches on the grave of dreams, yet sings a tune without. Hope. I'll close by reading Dunbar's poem once more. And I would encourage you, go to YouTube and find Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Somehow the technology was just capable in 1901 of capturing that man. Read this poem. It's beautiful. I know what the cage bird feels, alas. When the sun is bright on the upland slopes, I know what the cage bird feels when the wind stirs soft through the springing grass and the river flows like a stream of glass. When the first bird sings and the first bud opes and the faint perfume from its chalice steals, I know what the cage bird feels. 
I know why the caged bird beats his wings till its blood is red on the cruel bars, for he must fly back to his perch and cling when he fain would be on the bough a swing, and a pain still throbs in his old, old scars, and they pulse again with a keener sting. I know why he beats his wing. I know why the caged bird sings, ah me, when his wing is bruised and his bosom sore, when he beats his bars and he would be free, it is not a carol of joy or glee, but a prayer that he sends from his heart's deep core, but a plea that upward to heaven he flings. I know why the cage bird sings. It is called hope, brothers and sisters. It is an irrepressible force born of God in our souls. It is our heart that all manner of things shall be well. It is our belief over these last few months that in the midst of human frailty and foible, there has been divine presence and grace. It is our confidence that one day, that one day we will live and we will love as we are loved. It is our trust that one day the human condition will be so resolved by the image of God grown up in us that no deranged gunman will enter a theater again, that no broken child will sit in a prayer meeting Toby, it was your own cousin, sister-in-law, that was killed in Charleston how many weeks ago? Seven, six, seven weeks ago. Your own sister-in-law in a prayer meeting, and her life is taken. Oh, take us up to the mountaintop, sweet God. Take us up to the mountaintop, built and layered by graves unjust. Take us up to the mountaintop. We're on the top of that pain, on the perch of that bitterness. We will look out and we will forgive, and our hearts will be restored, and a new day will come. Brothers and sisters, we are a hope-filled people. It is the gift of God. Now let us be active in this gift called hope. Can you say amen? amen? Let's pray together. Sweet Christ, be our helper now. Be our helper that we might believe the right thing. Be our helper that we might long for the right thing. Be our helper that we might be your helper and participate in the right thing. Let our hope and our perseverance and our patience be no idle waiting. But we, may we set our hand to the plow and may we come into the yoke that is yours. And may we work for justice in this world 
until love rules, until love wins, may hope prevail in our hearts. And as a church, we hope every good thing for this place called Grace Point. In the midst of confusion and great joy, in the midst of sorrow and grieving, in the midst of jubilation and homecoming, in the midst of hospices and birthing units, in the midst of many coming, in the sadness of many going, may we hope the hope that is yours, sweet Christ. May we hope it for those who come and those who go. May we hope it for one and all. Heal our land, heal our world, heal our church, heal our hearts. Fill us again this day with hope, we pray, in Christ's sweet name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.